this is our main idea. Jesus is the promised king who is worthy of our sacrifice. My name is Joe. For those who don't know me, my wife Sarah and I serve as members of this church, and it is a privilege for me to share God's word with you this morning. Since moving back to China five years ago, Sarah and I have traveled around the country and visited many famous sites that I never had the chance to visit growing up in abroad. And I have to say, my favorite place to visit so far is the Forbidden City in Beijing, because the walls and the buildings were so well maintained that it is easy for me to imagine. What is like living in this historical palace? It is also a fascinating thought to think that many emperors might have taken the same steps I just took. It also made me think that we now live in a totally different time period. The place is called Forbidden City because this was a palace for the Chinese emperors. Most people were not allowed to enter, but today, kings and emperors no longer rule the nations. And all you need to enter the Forbidden City is 40 RMB. It is also certain that you will not find a king sitting on that ancient throne. Although this is the truth, and this is the case for many of us,、um, but for Christians living in this world, we have to remember that we do have a king. Paul tells us in Ephesians that our King Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand, and everything God created is under His authority. As we come to the end of our Christmas series. My desire is for us to see that the wonderful gift of God for us is a sovereign King. Our passage just this morning is on Matthew chapter two, verse one to twelve, and this is our main idea: Jesus is the promised King, who is worthy of our sacrifice. And we'll break our message into three parts. First is the certainty of God's promise. The second is the authority of Jesus, and the third is the worthiness. Of believers' sacrifice, the certainty, the authority, and the worthiness. Before we proceed to read our passage, it is important to know that we have four gospels written in the Old Testament about the story of Jesus, and each gospel has its own theme because each author has his own intention in writing about Jesus. For Matthew, who is the author of our passage, his top of mind is to present Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised King. That is why, starting from the very first sentence of this gospel, Matthew writes about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He is eager to show his readers that Jesus is the descendant of King David, which means he has credentials to be Israel's king. And as we come to the chapter two, Matthew is continuing his emphasis on Jesus being the king. Now let let us read through our passage, Matthew chapter two, verse one to twelve. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him." 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you, found him, when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The first part of our message is on the certainty of God's promise. Because one important idea Matthew is trying to reveal to us is that the birth of Jesus is also the fulfillment of God's promise. The birth of Jesus is also fulfillment of God's promise. From verse 1 and verse 2, we are told that the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they were looking for the king of the Jews. According to studies, the wise men from the east were actually magicians, astrologers from Persia, who had knowledge of the Old Testament. And more importantly, they were genuine seekers who were in Jerusalem looking for the king that was promised by God in the Hebrew scripture. Therefore, while they were looking for the king, they were also looking to witness the realization of God's promise. The promise of God can be found in many places in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel, God promised King David that after David, there will be a king who will establish his kingdom forever. According to Jeremiah, the king will deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. Throughout Israel's history, none of the kings fulfilled God's promise. Very few of them were righteous, and none of their kingdoms lasted forever. And it is in the Gospels we learn this promised king is Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 tells us, An angel came to Mary and told her that her son is the promised king, who will rule his kingdom forever. It writes, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you look back into our text, verse 4, when Herod the king gathered all the priests and scribes, they knew that this king the wise men were seeking is the one God promised to come. Herod asked, where would Christ be born? The word Christ has a clear meaning that refers back to the idea of the Messiah, a person who God has chosen to rule and to deliver his people from their sins. So Herod clearly knew who the wise men were seeking. 
What further verifies Jesus being the fulfillment of God's promise is when the priests and scribes, who are the professional or the experts of the scripture, confirm with Herod that the prophet did not only write about the coming of this promised king, but also the exact place where he would be born. They quote from Micah chapter 5 and show that this king will be born in Bethlehem. The birth of Jesus is the key moment in history when God's greatest promise to his people has come true. Although most people knew, but not many chose to believe or submit to this king. It is clear that Herod the king did not believe. Even though he knew the king is promised by God, his desire was actually to murder this king. If you look closely into verse 8, it says, Herod secretly assembled the wise men and told them to search for the Christ in Bethlehem and come back once they found the child so that they may worship the king as well. But in verse 16, when he realized that wise men were not coming back, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Herod did not want any other king in Israel but himself. However, true faith is shown in the response of the wise men to God's promise. We are told in verse 2 that they came to Jerusalem to worship this king. And when they found Jesus, they immediately fell down and worshipped. Now from our perspective, this may not seem strange because we know this is Jesus Christ who later performed miracles to reveal himself being the Messiah. But the wise men did not have the chance to see all of that. In front of them was just a child. By human wisdom, there's no way for anyone to see how this baby will grow up to be a king. Even in this day and age, when we see a baby boy, we have no idea what he will grow up to be like. Will he be healthy, smart, athletic, or faithful? We do not know. But when the wise men saw the star led them to the baby Jesus, they had faith in God that this child would be a king. Because they knew what God had promised, he would surely fulfill. They trusted in the certainty of God's promise. I believe there are many similarities between Christians today and the wise men. Just as there are promises reminding the wise men to wait for the birth of Jesus, there are promises for us to wait for the return of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, it says, Jesus tells us that one day he will return. And as he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the question for us is that, are we trusting in the promise of our Lord Jesus? And are we waiting for his return? There are two types of waiting that we can differentiate. One is like waiting to order something in a fast food restaurant. There are no high expectations. If the line is too long, you may just take out your phone and work on something else until it's your turn. Or the other way of waiting is more like expecting an important guest to visit your home. You clean up your place, make delicious food, pay close attention to where he is and when he arrives. So what differentiates the two types of waiting is the expectation we have towards the thing and the person that is to come. 
If it's important, you will not just wait, but everything you do while waiting will contribute to the moment of realization. We are waiting for the arrival of our king. We must make sure that whatever we do, we are contributing to the moment when we see him face to face. As we see how God fulfills his promise in Jesus Christ, we should all be reminded that the certainty of all his promises. Remember that God is the perfect promise keeper. 1 Samuel 15 tells us that God will not lie or change his mind. Therefore, what he promises, he will do. The Bible also tells us that our God is almighty. Therefore, whatever he says he will do, he has the power to accomplish. So brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, my encouragement is for you to find a resting place in God's promise. Find rest in God's promise, not man's. When we face struggles, the promises we know are the source of our hope. But we do not always rely on God's promise. Most of the promises we hear are actually man's promise. If you go to bookstores, you would see books written by experts that promise you some kind of success in certain areas of life. It can be in health, fitness, productivity, or business. And some of them can be very helpful books. But no matter how good the experts are, it is impossible for men to keep all his promises. James 4, verse 14 says that we do not even know what tomorrow will bring. We are just a mist or a little water drop that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So when you face trials, struggles, and disappointments, be reminded that God is the only perfect promise keeper. He promised us that testing of our faith produces endurance. And he promised that he will neither leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we should not fear nor be anxious, for our God is the perfect promise keeper. And to friends who are here and do not believe in Jesus, let the certainty of God's promise be a warning and a call to repent. You may ask, if God's promise is true, and if Jesus is a king, then why don't we see him on the throne? Why don't we see him in power? The reason is that the purpose of king's first coming is to die for his people on the cross so their sin may be forgiven. And it is at his second coming, the fullness of his kingdom will be realized. But by then, it will be too late. Jesus will be back to judge all souls, and only those who have faith in Christ will be saved. Others will face eternal fire in hell. God's desire for you is to realize that you have sinned, and there is nothing you can do to save yourself but to put your faith in the work of Jesus that is done for you. That is the only way to salvation and the only way to see the true joy of Christmas. Now we have seen through the story of Matthew, the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And in God's fulfillment, we also be reminded that the certainty of all his promises. But Matthew is also concerned about who is this promising or what kind of king God is promised to deliver to his people. And this leads us to the second main idea of today's message. 
it is the authority of Jesus. Jesus is not an ordinary king. He is the highest authority in the universe, and his kingdom and dominion has no limit. At the second half of verse 6, Matthew gave us a summarized edition of what Jesus' authority looks like. He writes, From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The newborn king is a ruler who will shepherd his people. So the two key elements here for us to look into are the authority of a ruler and the act of shepherding. First and foremost, Jesus is the ruler of all kings and his authority is over all things. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus told his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. It is also written in Philippians, At the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in the heavens and on earth and under the earth. It tells us that Jesus is not only promised king for Israel, he is the king of all nations. He is the king for all of us sitting in this room. When we think of high authorities in society, we usually think of leaders of nations who have great power. They can command a large number of people. Imagine the most powerful leader of any nation. I'm sure they would have secretaries preparing their documents, drivers for their car, and bodyguards at, bodyguards at their command. People would revolve around them and listen to their orders. But when we think of Jesus, his authority is beyond what we can comprehend. His authority is over all created things, trees, animals, oceans, and even winds. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus was on a boat with the apostles when a windstorm came. Jesus was able to rebuke the wind and speak to the sea, demanding them to be at peace. And the apostles were so astonished that they asked, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They were not able to process what they just saw, a human being having the power over wind and water. So what does it mean for us when we recognize the authority of Jesus? What does it mean for us when we recognize the authority of Jesus? We should acknowledge that we are under his dominion and should submit all our desires to him. We must understand the king who is ruler of all things should be also the ruler of our heart. The king, who is the ruler of all things, should be also the ruler of our heart. Jesus said, whoever follows him must deny himself and take up his cross, because he knew that by the nature of human desire, all men want to be their own king. The sin within us can only reject Jesus' authority. For the past few weeks, I've been just occupied by work, renovation for our apartment, and some sermon preparation. This has been the busiest experience I've ever had. And here and there, I will find some moment, an hour or two, where nothing requires my immediate action. And at those moments, I will just turn all my time-wasting mode into an extreme and do all the meaningless stuff that I can think of, watching sports, some funny clips, or room tours of celebrities. Was it relaxing for me? I don't think so. I knew in my heart I was not trying to rest. I was trying to demand 
my own time. I was thinking, God, for all the hard work I have done, I must deserve some time of my own. I wanted to be the king of my own just for that hour. But this is a rebellious thought. We are called to be stewards, not kings. All of what we have is given by God to be used for His purpose, not of our own comfort. Let us be reminded to check our hearts and desires and acknowledge that all of what we have belongs to our King, not us. He must be the ruler of our possessions, thoughts, and behaviors. When we think of kings or any authorities with great power by nature, we imagine them to be very far away from us. But the Bible teaches us our King Jesus is not distant from us. Even though he's a king, he's also our shepherd. This is the second element of verse 6 telling us that Jesus is the ruler who shepherds his people. So what does it imply when, when the scripture tells us that the king is also our shepherd? The king is also our shepherd. First of all, it means the king cherishes his people. In the historical context, shepherding is not just a duty or a job for someone to take care of the sheep. Shepherds actually own the sheep. The sheep are his possession and wealth. The loss of a sheep means the loss of his own possession. Similarly, our Lord Jesus sees his people and thinks of them as his own. Therefore, he willingly takes care and provides for them as his own possession. The second implication of Jesus being our shepherd is that the king leads his people just like the shepherds lead their sheep. One major responsibility for a shepherd is to lead the flock to areas with sufficient food. And the only way for the sheep to survive is following the guidance of the shepherd. It is also true in our spiritual lives. If we don't want to starve, we must go to Jesus as our source of strength. He feeds us by teaching who he is through his word. The third and last implication is that the shepherd is the defender of his flocks. Therefore, King Jesus is our defender. There are all kinds of dangers faced by the flock. Poisonous plants, predators, even natural diseases. Any of these would cost the life of a sheep. And the shepherd's responsibility is to protect his sheep from all these threats. So for us, as we live in this world, facing danger, threats, persecutions, false teaching, and temptations, we ought to seek the help of our shepherd and king. He would come and destroy our enemies and defend our souls. Brothers and sisters, this is the king that God promised to rule over us. He cares, leads, and protects us. Behind all of what he does is his love for his people. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is no king like him whose authority is so high that he rules over all things and his love for his people so deep that he is willing to die for them. This is our king and we should joyfully call him our Lord. Through all the struggles and challenges of our Christian life, sometimes we are so weary 
and so stressed that we would question God and ask, Why me, God? Why am I chosen to do this? It might just be better for me to live like the rest of the world. But when we just spend some time and think about who Jesus really is and what he has done for us, the tone would be very different. Why me, Lord? You are the king of all kings, yet you choose to die for me. Just like the words from him that we often sing, while all our hearts and all our song join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? And we have seen the promise of God fulfilled and understood the authority of Jesus. Now we come to the last part of our message, that is the worthiness of believer sacrifice. The worthiness of believer's sacrifice. Let's look back into our passage and read verse 10 and verse 11 again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now this is the key moment of our story when the wise men finally found Jesus. And the reaction from the wise men shows they have come just for Jesus, not for anything else. Because we see the first reaction of the wise men when they saw Jesus is that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The cause of their joy was nothing else but seeing Jesus in person. Let us go deeper into the exact experience of the wise men to understand what was going on here. Let's first define joy. What exactly is joy? What is joy? Borrowing the concept from John Piper, he says, Joy, in biblical context, is a good feeling or positive emotion from our soul caused by seeing the beauty of Christ. So there are three key elements. It's a positive feeling. It's a positive emotion. It is from our soul, and it is caused by seeing the beauty of Christ. So let us use this, this definition and analyze the joy that we see in wise men. First of all, joy is an emotion. Therefore, by nature, joy is not something that we can consciously control. When we are in bad mood, it doesn't help when someone comes to you and say, just be happy. We can't just control our emotions in that way. So in a sense, the joy that wise men experience is not something that they can control. It was an immediate reaction. And how joyful were the wise men? It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were as happy as they could be. There are precious moments in our life when we experience something that makes us happy. And usually those, during those moments, we have to force ourselves to control it and make us laugh so loud or make us smell so, so big that we have to use our hand to cover our face. And this is the extent of joy that the wise men were experiencing. The second element of joy is that it comes from our soul. It is the depth of the emotion that we experience. And when it comes from our soul, it also satisfies our innermost desires. One of the most joyful moments I experienced in my life was at our wedding. The moment when Luke started to share his message about the first time meeting Sher and I, 
My tears rolled out of my eyes. I wanted to control it, but I could not. Because that was the moment I realized how good God was to us, how he changed our lives and joined us together in marriage. I was thankful and satisfied. And that kind of joy doesn't just fade away. It is memorable and even sweet as I think back. Joy is a positive emotion. It comes from our soul. And lastly, it is caused by seeing the beauty of Christ. The Christian joy must come from God because it is God who reveals the beauty of Christ. It is God who reveals his loving kindness to us and causes us to be joyful. So in other words, it is God who gives us joy. What God revealed to the wise men is something extraordinary. They saw Christ in person. They witnessed the physical revelation of God's faithfulness to his people. They saw the goodness of God reflected from the face of the promised Savior. They knew it was a precious moment because for hundreds of years, people have waited, yet they were chosen to witness it. There are no words that can actually fully explain the joy that the wise men were experiencing. And I don't think the wise men were able to express such a joy themselves. That is why the inexpressible joy of seeing the king can only be demonstrated through offering their gifts. There are many intentions for someone to give gifts. You give gifts that are given to someone or someone needy. Uh, You see people on the street who need food or money, and you provide what you have as gifts. There are also gifts given or exchange as a way to express good wishes to the other person. And during Christmas season, I assume many of us have involved in this kind of activity. There are also gifts given so that the giver can ask for a favor to the receiver in the future. And in its worst case, it can be bribery. But the intention of wise men was none of above. For the wise men to present their gifts to Jesus It is not for his family to buy something nice for Jesus or to use it for urgent needs. The wise men knew this is the promised king. He has God's favor. Nothing is needed for the king. Neither were their gifts given as a good wish or asked for any kind of favor. This is the righteous king whom they were facing. No favor could be granted through gifts or any kind of action. It writes in verse 11, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gifts are offerings. It is given purely to demonstrate the value of Christ Jesus. Again, I have to quote from Piper as he writes, when you give a gift to Christ like this, referring to the wise man's gift, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich, or bartering with you, or negotiating some payment. I have not come to you for your things, but for yourself. These are treasures brought by the wise men to give up for the sake of Christ's glory. Brothers and sisters, may I ask if you see the value of Christ Jesus in your life. If you see the value of Christ Jesus in your life. Are you willing to sacrifice not for any personal gain, but purely for the sake of his glory. 
God's calling for us is to worship Christ, to show people around us how precious the King is to us. He calls us to give up all we have for Jesus, and He promised that in Christ you will find joy, everlasting joy. To quote what we often say in Chinese Bible study, but this is too difficult. It is, it is too difficult for us to do. It is difficult, and I'm sure our God knows that. But if it's easy, it probably means that we give up. what we give up is not important. And if it's not important, how can we demonstrate the value of Christ? We should also be reminded that God does not need our sacrifice. Just like the wise men are not offering their gifts to Christ because he needs them. Anything we offer to God is to demonstrate He's greater than what we gave up. Therefore, the key is not to strengthen our spirit and just force ourselves to let go of everything. The key is to see the value of Christ in our lives. When we truly know His value, we will genuinely give up all we have for Him. And to recognize the beauty of Christ, we need God's revelation. We must pray to God often and ask Him to reveal who Christ is to us. The theme of today's message is that Jesus is the promised King who is worthy of our sacrifice. And throughout our study, we saw the certainty of God's promise through the birth of Jesus. We saw the authority of Jesus through the revelation of the prophets. And at last, we saw how wise men joyfully worshipped this promised King reminding us the surpassing value of Jesus and the worthiness of our sacrifice. I always have the impression that Christmas is the best time of the year. One reason is because I remember during the years in Hungary, our neighborhood would put out beautiful lights around each of their houses. Our neighbors would come and give us greetings and bring us gifts, and everyone seemed so happy and at peace. The other reason might be the songs that we often hear in the mall whenever you go, telling you it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. I think it's indeed a wonderful time of the year to enjoy with our friends and families. But I also think there's a danger in mixing this holiday mood with the celebration of Christ's birth. Decorations, the gifts, and the year-end holidays can become distractions for us to experience the true joy we have in Christ. If I may, I would like to challenge all of us here to also celebrate Christmas in spring, in summer, and in fall. During the season when not much joy can be found, during a place when Christ is not known. According to Philippians 4, God's command for us is to rejoice in the Lord always. If that is the case, then as followers of Jesus, every day should be celebrated and be joyful as Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the king you have given us to lead us, to guide us, to love us, and to die for us. Lord, we ask you to reveal your son to us that every day we may know him more, Lord. And we ask through his knowledge, through knowing him, we may have peace 
and everlasting joy in you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.